Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, comrades. This episode, as is by now pretty normal for our show, turned out a bit different than expected. I uh, wanted to just do a nice little show about the, how I call it, the Great Game Volume 2 between Lenin and Bolsheviks and the British, which involved India, you know, in, in the Afghanistan and Indian region in the 20s, as this plays out nicely in our Stalin series. But now we might go further. I even think this might turn into a two-parter because of all the things that are going on. And yeah, some extras for this subject, when we will get there, will be in the Stalin episodes uh, normally. But, you see, I just love to tie things together. For one, while looking up this, I found some articles. One of them, in the 6th of March, appeared in freepost.com, which is an Indian news site in English. As the article is quite short and does raise quite eyebrows, I will read it in full here. A war of words has broken out between the Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, which is the party of, of the Prime Minister of India, I suppose, and the opposition over the toppling of Vladimir Lenin's statue in Tripura on Tuesday morning. It started after the statue was toppled in the state's Belonia town, allegedly by BJP workers. The statue's vandalism was part of a large-scale violence reported from Tripura, as CPM offices in different parts of the state were defaced. As CPM would be another one of India's communistic parties. But even as the CPM was, was decrying the violence and terming it communism-phobia, BJP leaders waded into the debate. The party's national secretary, Ram Madhav, tweeted out a post saying people are taking down Lenin's statue and used the party's slogan for the Tripura elections, Chalo Paltai, with it. However, he, la- he later deleted it. BJP leader Subramaniam Swami also appeared to support the raising of Lenin's statue, even calling the Russian revolutionary a terrorist and a foreigner. Quote, Lenin is a foreigner and, a, in, in a way, terrorist. There shouldn't be a statue of this sort of a person in our country. They are welcome to put the statue inside the Communist Party headquarters and worship it if they so wish. Swami was quoted as saying by the news agency Ani. But even while controversy continued to rage, Tamil Nadu, BJP leader Age Raja, stoked the fire further by saying E.V. Ramasamy, commonly known as Peridyar, will meet a similar fate. Raja slammed Periyar in a post he put up on Facebook, although he subsequently deleted it. Periyar was a 20th century thinker, activist and a politician who started the self-respect movement against Brahmin and uppercase hegemony. He is revered as a champion of the Dravidian movement in South India. And uh, about this guy, this age Raja, 
said, quote, Who is Lenin? What is his connection with India? What is the connection between communism and India? Lenin's statue was broken down in Tripura. Today, it is Lenin's statue in Tripura. Tomorrow, it will be the caged zealot Evi Ramasamy's statue in Tamil Nadu, he had written. But the damage had clearly been done already. And and, and here, uh, the article kind of really uh, struck me as odd, so I had to put it here. M.K. Stalin. Yes. Um, <clears throat> working president of the DMK, which is uh, another communist party in India. His name is M.K. Stalin. Uh, seriously. <clears throat> Uh, DMK, which reversed Periyar and owes much of its ideology to the Dravidian cause, slammed Raja, who is also the BJP national secretary. Stalin said Raja should be arrested under the Goondas Act. The news minute reported Stalin as saying, quote, No one can even dare to touch EVR's statue. Age Raja's comments have incited violence. He has been repeatedly doing this. He should be arrested and Goondas Act slapped against him. DM- DMK spokesperson A. Saravanan was also quoted in the article as saying the party will organize protests against Raja and the BJP in many parts of the state. Quote, This is pure hate and Talibanization of India. Such things ha- only happen in Taliban. In a democracy, we don't indulge in political vandalism or threaten to do it. Uh, Saravanan said. And uh, the weirdest part is as I was googling this up for the episode, you know, between Lenin and India... I found out more interesting things about this whole situation, because two days later, in the 8th of March, one of the newspapers, as I understand uh, more prominent authors of of this uh, free free thought uh, thing, one K. Nageshwar wrote another article about the subject where he had the following to say about the removal of Lenin's statue, quote, The pulling down of Lenin's statues in Tripura is not just an attack of left ideology. It is an assault on the plurality of ideas and diversity of thought that has been a characteristic of Indian civilization. This is evident from the fact that a BJP leader in Tamil Nadu had declared that Periyar statues would fate a similar fate. The culture of intolerance goes contrary to the argumentative Indian tradition and tantamounts to Talibanization of Indian society and polity. Left or right, none have a right to derail constitutional values and rule of law by indulging in politics of violence and revenge. While claiming that the BJP workers had nothing to do with the vandalism, the party spokespersons are seen busy defending the act on national television. The obvious defense of the Saffron Brigade is that such acts of revenge are a reaction to the political violence allegedly perpetuated by the left in Tripura. End quote. So yeah, while I was researching for this episode, I found this and I just had to had to put this in because this gives you a neat Indian perspective on the whole thing because what is going on here? Why do some people in India still revere Lenin so much? Why does the Communist Party of India leader name himself M.K. Stalin of all people? Stalin. That, that's that's like if if uh, some far right group would just uh, you know run a party naming himself the new Hitler or, or something uh, at least that's how I view it. Now I can't really delve into Indian politics, especially modern day politics, because I'm not an expert here. And I do hope that some of my Indian listeners, because I know you are out there, will write us an email after this episode correcting my mistakes, giving you perspectives, which is also one of the reasons uh, why this is a two parter. Oh, and we will return to this in Stalin episodes, because I want to understand some things about this, because uh, Indian and Soviet relationships lasted for quite a while, even after they um, they gained independence from the British. But, uh, but yeah, I can delve into the history about what happened between Lenin, India, the Soviets, and, uh, well, Great Britain at the time. 
As Peter Hopkirk states in his book, Setting the East Ablaze, which, by the way, I will also use in the future when talking about the Mad Baron in Mongolia, but as he states in the prologue of his book, quote, Within three years of John Buchan, writing in 1916, the missionaries of Bolshevism had sworn to set the East ablaze, using the heavy new gospel of Marxism as their torch. Their aim was to liberate the whole of Asia, but their starting point was British India, richest of all imperial possessions. For Britain, then still the foremost imperial power, was seen by Lenin as principal obstacle to his dream of world revolution. England, he declared in 1920, is our greatest enemy. It is in India that we must strike them the hardest. If India could be torn by insurrection from Britain's grasp, then no longer she would be able to buy off her workers, unwitting shareholders in imperialism, with the sweated labor and cheap raw materials of the East. Economic collapse and revolution would follow at home. If similar uprisings could be fermented through the colonial world, then the long-awaited revolution would blaze its way across Europe. The East, proclaimed, will help us to conquer the West. End quote. As you can see, Hopkirk, uh, which book I will use in this episode quite a lot, here writes from the British perspective, and we shall come back to him, obviously. Maybe even just in part two, but uh, I just had to research this from an Indian perspective, as Hopkirk's book is mostly written between, between between the struggle between the Bolsheviks and the British here, but Indians, as you can see, just as we here in the Baltics are apparently still very touched by the Soviet Union and Lenin and the Bolsheviks and what went on there. So, I spent uh, quite a lot of time reading every Indian historian, politician, and journalist I could find about this whole situation, because I think think that uh, giving their perspective matters quite a lot, as it's even new for me. Because we have to look at all three sides here. India, Russia, and Britain. In the beginning, at least how my Indian sources say, it was the first Russian Revolution in 1905, the lesser known one in the West, that fired up the imagination of Indian revolutionaries. Mohandas Gandhi regarded it as, quote, the greatest event of the present century, end quote, and a great lesson to us, that he also said. India was also switching to this, quote, Russian remedy against tyranny, uh, still by Gandhi. The revolution made a big impact on the minds of Indian revolutionaries, who, unlike the moderates and the extremists of the Congress party, intended to get absolute independence by adopting revolutionary methods, as practiced by our dear friends the Russians. The <clears throat> Bengali newspaper declared in a May 25, 1906 editorial, quote, The revolution that has been affected in Russia after years of bloodshed may serve as a lesson to other governments and other peoples, end quote. Another newspaper, the Yugantar, issued a threat, quote, In every country there are plenty of secret places where arms can be manufactured. Uh, this Yugantar advocated the plundering of post offices, banks, and government treasuries for financing revolutionary activities. The newspaper, by the way, also said that, quote, Not much physical strength was required to shoot Europeans. And yet another uh, newspaper stated, the Indian sociologist, quote, December 1907, by the way. Any agitation in India must be carried out secretly, and the only methods which can bring the English to their senses are the Russian methods, vigorously and incessantly applied until the English relax their tyranny and are driven out of the country, end quote. Now, obviously, all of these these Indian articles had an 
impact <laughs> uh, basically just after their publishing. And within a year, bombs were exploding everywhere and apparently bullets were flying and rebellions started. On April 30th, 1908, Prafula Chaki and Khudiram Bose, uh, I hope I pronounced this correctly, seriously, threw a bomb on a carriage in Muzaffarpur in order to kill Douglas Kingsford, the chief presidency magistrate, but by mistake killed two women traveling in this, this carriage. Praising these bomb throwers, the newspaper Kal wrote, quote, The people are prepared to do anything for the sake of Swaraj, which is their term for self-rule there, and they no longer sing the glories of British rule. They have no dread of British power. It is simply a question of sheer brute force. Bomb throwing in India is different from bomb throwing in Russia. Many of the Russians side with the, their government against these bomb throwers, but it is doubtful whether much sympathy will be found in India. If even in such circumstances Russia got the Duma, then India is bound to get Svarajya. And one of these guys, uh, Chucky, committed suicide when caught, and Boze, just 18 years old, was hanged. Bal Gangadhar Tilak, known as Gandhi's political guru, defended the revolutionaries and demanded immediate self-rule. He was later arrested, and the British, uh, basically kangaroo court, sentenced him to six years in a Burma jail. Now, days after Tilak's trial, Russian leader, our good old buddy, Vladimir Lenin, published an article titled, quote, Inflammable Material in World Politics, which is basically about bombings, obviously. And our good buddy wrote that the British, angered by the mounting revolutionary struggle in India, are, quote, demonstrating what brutes the European politician can turn into when the masses rise against the colonial system. And, quote, <clears throat> there is no end to the acts of violence and plunder which goes under the name of British system of government in India. Nowhere in the world, with the exception, of course, Russia, will you find such abject mass poverty, such chronic starvation among the people. The most liberal and radical personalities of free Britain become regular Genghis Khans when appointed to govern India and are capable of sanctioning every means of pacifying the population in their charge, even to the extent of flogging political protesters. As And basically, while he was just smashing the <clears throat> infamous sentence pronounced by the British jackals on the Indian Democrat Tilak, Lenin basically predicted with the Indians uh, having got a taste of local mass struggle, the quote, British regime in India is doomed. <clears throat> and, and further on, because uh, Lenin speaking about how floggings of political enemies are bad. Yeah, that, that's fun already. Quote, <clears throat> By their colonial plunder of Asian countries, the Europeans have succeeded in so stealing one of them, Japan, that she has gained great military victories which have, which have ensured her independent national development. There can be no doubt that the age-old plunder of India by the British and the contemporary struggle of all these advanced Europeans against Persian and Indian democracy will steal millions, tens of millions of proletarians in Asia to wage a struggle against their oppressors which will be just as victorious as that of the Japanese. Yeah, this is uh, this is before even the World War One. This is while uh, well, Lenin is just in in his beginning beginning times, really. But this nicely, nicely, neatly ties into our uh, no fine revolutions, which again I covered only in European parts. But India is very closely connected to all this situation, which again made this episode a whole lot more complicated than that in the beginning. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone here that um, Lenin and Gandhi were kind of at the opposite ends of the revolutionary spectrum. They, uh, their, their goals were different, and their Russian rationale behind those goals were different, and their means 
well, obviously, Gandhi was a peaceful man while Lenin was a brimstone and fireman, but, um, but still. Irving Louis Horowitz writes in The Idea of War and Peace, The Experience of Western Civilization, that despite their differences, the very fact they were both leaders of masses of mankind in great nations with huge populations placed them in a kinship of sorts. India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, has indicated the character of this relationship of Lenin to Gandhi, quote, Almost at the same time as the October Revolution led by the great Lenin, we in India began a new phase in our struggle for freedom. Our people for many years were engaged in this struggle with courage and patience. And although under the leadership of Gandhi we followed another path, we were influenced by the example of Lenin, end quote. When Gandhi said nations have progressed both by evolution and revolution, and that history is more a record of wonderful revolution than of so-called ordered progress, he demonstrated a community of mind with Lenin, according to Horowitz, that went beyond the simple coincidence of political careers. And then, then there is also the kind of, um, kind of weird ties with socialism, because, at least at the beginning, Gandhi and Lenin somewhat shares an aspect of socialism with Gandhi. That is basically the fact that socialism is, for them at least, more than a transformation in economic relations, but in a way transformation in human psychology as well. We can we can see that Gandhi kind of did this for peace and for self-determination and how it uh, twisted around and turned into this new Soviet man in Soviet Union. Horowitz notes that both Gandhi and Lenin were distinguished by a fierce devotion to principle, while at the same time revealing large reserves of flexibility in the political application of these principles. Quote, Thus the pacifist Gandhi could even argue to the utility of national armies, small in size to be sure, in times of national crisis, while Lenin could see the utility of middle-class parliamentarism in the development of class forces. Even in personal characteristics, they had much in common. Each of them eschewed personal comforts, practicing instead an asceticism geared to the achievement of their ends. End quote. Here, however, I bet disagree with Horowitz, because as we have noticed, Lenin uh, wasn't really that much of an ascetic. But at the beginning, yes, yes, uh, by the time of 1905, he thought that he might might use this doom of sorts, but that would later be purged out, you know, once once he actually gained, gained into power. One interesting thing, by the way, is that Leon Trotsky, our nice pal Trotsky, uh, held, by the way, that Gandhi was a fake freedom fighter. In an open letter to the workers of India, written in 1939, just before World War II broke out, uh, Trotsky wrote, quote, the Indian bourgeoisie is incapable of leading a revolutionary struggle. They are closely bound up with and depended upon British imperialism. The leader and prophet of this bourgeoisie is Gandhi, a fake leader and a false prophet. Gandhi and his compeers have developed a theory that India's position will constantly improve, that her liberties will continually be enlarged, and that India will gradually become a dominion on the road of peaceful reforms. Later on, India may even achieve full independence. This entire perspective is false to the core. See, according to Trotsky, never before in history have slave owners voluntarily freed their slaves. If the Indian leaders were hopeful that for their cooperation during the war, the British would free India, that, according to Trotsky, they were mistaken. And with kind of a weird foresight, I would say, Trotsky predicted, quote, 
First, the fall exploitation of the colonies will become greatly intensified. The metropolitan centers will not only pump from the colonies foodstuffs and raw materials, but they will also mobilize vast numbers of colonial slaves who are to die on the battlefields of their masters. Trotsky personally believed that India's exploitation would be redoubled and tripled in order to rebuild war-torn Britain. Quote, Gandhi is already preparing the ground for such policy. Double chains of slavery will be the inevitable consequence of the war if the masses of India follow the politics of Gandhi. And you know what? This is kind of crazy, but um, Trotsky's predictions would have come true if the rebel Indian National Army hadn't driven the stake of fear through British hearts at one point. Because, uh, and we'll get to this in future episodes when it comes to World War II, because right now I'm kind of fascinated with this whole Indian-Soviet time. But the, for- the 1946 revolt of 20,000 Indian Navy and the very real possibility of the Indian Army and Indian Air Force joining the revolt, uh, yeah, that basically finally hasted the, the end. And by the way, the end of what uh, my Indian source here calls... <clears throat> One of the most genocidal empires of the face of the earth. Now, I don't I don't know about that, really. British might disagree, but Indian people have very, very strong opinions about the British rule there. In his book, uh, India and the Soviet Union, 1917-1947, Nirula Singh writes that Lenin took notice of even the smallest acts of popular resistance in India or China against imperialist bullying, blackmail or domination. Quote, Lenin had been a keen student of the writings of the leaders of the freedom struggle in India, and was very well aware of the social, economic, and political developments in India. He used to read all the reports pertaining to the issue. He was acquainted with the writings of Lala Lajpat Rai, who was murdered by the British as well. And yeah, to be sure, um, obviously Lenin viewed this British rule in India through a completely revolutionary viewpoint here. Uh, because, although all classes of British society gave the thumbs up to the brutal colonial exploitation of India, and again, this is um, this is from my Indian sources, and also back the mass murder of Indian civilians, uh, apparently Lenin pinned the blame only on the British capitalist class. Meanwhile, the people in India blamed simply all the British, including like uh, the, the middle class and uh, nobility and basically everyone, including the lower classes. And because, well, partly because of this selective approach to colonialism, and partly because Indians were not enthused by communism itself, in India in general, at that time, Lenin never became extremely popular figure. Uh, we're speaking uh, again on the time before, uh, before the October Revolution here. But, um, again... Uh, again, this Nirula Singh continues, quote, <clears throat> However, the Russian Revolution of 1917 generally excited the Indian educated class and revolutionaries as it showed them a way to overthrow a brutal regime. From the outside, there was a lot to like about the Soviet Union. It had captured the world's imagination when, as early as the fourth day after the revolution, the Soviet Union introduced the eight-hour working day, which is, well, what we have now everywhere. Before the revolution in the West, workers usually worked 12 to 15 hours daily, breaking all only for a 15-minute lunch. The five-day work week and equal rights for women were also Soviet contributions. And that is true from, from this guy, but uh, end quote anyways. See, uh, Indian leaders like Gandhi and Nehru were greatly enthused by the arrival of the world's first people's government. And here, from Nehru himself, quote, 
Almost at the same time as the October Revolution, led by the Great Lenin, we in India began a new phase in our struggle for freedom. Our people for many years were engaged in this struggle with courage and patience. And although under the leadership of Gandhi we followed another path, we were influenced by the example of Lenin. And see, Nehru, uh, who attended the 10th anniversary celebrations of the Russian Revolution with his father and wife, was greatly impressed, greatly impressed, by the villages erected for foreign guests at Lenin's orders. Problem was, they were all Potemkin's villages, as you might know if you listen to my Lenin series. The apparent success of the Soviet system so strongly impressed Nehru that on returning home, he began to popularize socialist ideas. Leonid Moronov writes in the mainstream magazine, quote, He was firmly convinced that the only solution to the multidimensional social and economical problems of India lay along the socialist path. And, when he became the Prime Minister of Free India, his first step was to lay the foundation of future India on socialist basis. Because, you see, socialists were quite proficient, even back then, to provide a neat image on how everything is just better and great in the great Soviet land. The Soviets manipulated Nehru with their carefully conducted guided tours, guided tours being the kind of the default when with foreign visitors, that showed their massive factories, incompatibility between managers and workers, 100% employment, and happy little little girls waving around flags. And that happy flag-waving little girls, that's the direct quote here. Now, obviously, they didn't show him the, the, the shortages, the deficits, the forced collectivization, and a completely inefficient economy, but hey, Nehru really got inspired. And again, uh, this first prime minister of India wrote, quote, Russia thus interests us because it may help us to find some solution for the great problems which face the world today. It interests us specifically because conditions there have not been, are, and are not even now, very dissimilar to conditions in India. Both are vast agricultural countries with only the beginning of industrialization, and both have to face poverty and illiteracy. If Russia finds a satisfactory solution for these, our work in India is made easier. This, so far, should show you how exactly Lenin and Bolsheviks inspired Indians from the Indian perspective. But, there's more. Oh boy, there's a, there's a lot more in this episode. Because now... Now we uh, we have to turn to an article by an Indian New Zealand journalist and a researcher, one Rakesh Krishnan Simha, in IndiaFacts.org, from again the 10th of March this year, where basically he speaks about both the influence of communist leaders, the history of communism in India, and the removal of uh, of these Lenin statues, which is how I found this article, and how we can clearly see that yeah, we are not the only region. Where, where the impact of history is still very much felt today. The article is named Lenin's Statues. Whether Lenin was good or bad, the statues must go. And um, I quote from the article here. I basically paraphrased it <clears throat> with some quotes here. Because it is a deeply religious country, India should ideally be a swamp where the godless cult of communism cannot grow. And yet, like a persistent weed, communism remained rooted in Kerala, Bengal, and Tripura. The upshot, all three states are industrial wastelands. Communism has almost completely destroyed the economic backbone of Bengal, which was the third most industrialized state at independence. Militant trade unionism not only drove industry out, but also introduced deep lassitude among Bengalis. After the communists came to power in the mid-70s, Bengal went through 30 years of industrial cleansing. 
No manager or business owner was safe in this proletariat paradise. Supervisors who tried to discipline workers were locked up, beaten, and often lynched on the, to- on the shop floor. Macabre tales of managers being thrown into vats of acid were reported in the media as late as early 2000s. The killers usually walked free because the CPIM, which is the previous name of Communist Party, controlled the police and judiciary. The legacy of labor violence continues in Mamata Banjeri's non-communist government. On June 15, 2014, the mill management of Northbrook Jute Company in Bhradeshwar had summoned workers to a meeting. No jobs were to be cut. The meeting was called purely to discuss a restructured work schedule that involved curtailing work hours. A heated exchange followed and CEO Maheshwari was beaten to death by agitated workers. The weapons used included concrete slabs, bricks and iron rods. <clears throat> Simply amazing, isn't it? Not content with destroying industry and unleashing terror in the rural areas to make the poor vote for the Communist Party of India, the left began to change the state's demog- demography by inviting Bangladeshi Muslims to settle in the border districts as well as cities like Kolkata. Since Bengal was partitioned on the religious lines on the demand of Muslims, ideally, there should not be a single Muslim on the Indian side of Bengal. Uh, this is a <laughs> from this article, please, guys. But in the dystopian state of affairs... <clears throat> In a dystopian state of affairs. Today, over 27% of Bengal's population is Muslim, making it one of the most violence-prone states in India. This is another enduring contribution of the Bengal communists. In Kerala, too, the communists drove out all trace of whatever little industry was there. The only reason the state enjoys prosperity is because of its proximity to the Gulf countries, where millions of Keralites slog and send home tens of billions of dollars in remittances annually. Kerala is thus a money-order economy and has prospered despite the communists, not because of them. Another gift of the communists is the district of Malappuram, which was carved out of the Hindu-majority Kojikoda district at the request of district's Muslim minority. Today, Malapurram is a mini-Pakistan with Muslim youth there making a beeline for Syria and other terrorist hotspots. From smuggling, drugs, weapons running, and being one of the major destinations of fake Indian currency from Pakistan, to providing safe heaven for Islamic terrorists, this Islamic enclave in Kerala does it all. However, instead of curbing such anti-national activities, the communists are attacking Hindus. The Kannur model of targeted killing of mainly RSS workers, as well as workers belonging to the Congress and other political parties, is copybook red terror. Apparently, this is all happening uh, up to, like, 2000s, 2014 even, it's crazy. Uh, further on from, from the article, in this backdrop, it is the collective anger of Tripura people against the excesses of the communists that has found expression in the demolition of Lenin's statue in Tripura's Bologna district. Had Indians been more politically aware and had they a better sense of history, they would have joined Russians and other East Europeans in bringing down statues of communist leaders in 1991. And to this part of article, I agree, because, you know, we, we brought down our Lenin statues. However, it's better late than never. Lenin has no place in India, and more of his statues, wherever they stand, should be pulled down. Monuments should not be erected to honor mass murderers. This is, uh... This is how, uh... This guy basically describes all the situation. Then again, uh... Yeah, even though he speaks of communist terror, I do have to say that this guy, as we can see, isn't much on the tolerant side himself, it seems, as um, at the end of the article, he finishes it with this quote. 
like Muslims and Christians. The communists too want total control of the masses. If Islam total uh, orders total obedience to the diktats of Muhammad, and Christianity wants to you to surrender your rationality at the altar of Jesus, communism wants the same level of mind control. Yeah, you know, um, because equating all Christians and all Muslims to communists uh, greatly works for your cause there, buddy. But fine. But yeah, that's sort of the uh, short story of the Indian side of at least partial Soviet influence in India. At least what I cobbled together from, from early guys being inspired by it. But again, it's way too little, and we'll come back to this. But what about the British then, who ruled it at the time of the October Revolution? So, uh, let's turn a bit to the academia, because all this press is a bit, um, a bit tiring, especially since the, all the previous March episodes. Oh, and the memoirs of revolutionaries. Those things are always fun. By the way, the following part, as I'd like to give you some sources here, because I will need some, some nice emails uh, from you with advice here, uh, comes from, quote, mm, Soviet influence in British India, intelligence and paranoia within imperial government in the interwar years by Alan Seelaf. Uh, more from, again, setting these to blaze by Hobkirk. And from a study in British Stalinism by Callahan. And of course, and most notably, and this guy is really important, Manabendra Nath Roy, who wrote his own memoirs, which are just called like that. M.N. Roy's Memoirs. See, Roy, as far as Indian nationalists go, was never uh, kind of the similar force in Indian politics that Gandhi or Nehru were. But as far as ties to my own good podcast theme, Soviet Union, Roy is basically the guy of Soviet influence in India. At least from the time period that we're taking on here, which would be uh, 1920s, early 1920s at least. Because we will just not make it in this episode to 40s. But we'll get, we'll, we'll get there, and I think part two will be there when, uh, when we'll get to the similar time in Stalin series, because I really want to touch on India now, because, hey, turns out it was really more interesting than I had first imagined. Anyhow, Roy. Roy was born as Narendra Nath Bhakatcharya in Urbalia, Bengal, in 1887. At the age of 14, he joined the anti-British revolutionary movement in Bengal. From World War I, his travels in like trying to achieve this goal of this anti-British movement they took him all over the world. He traveled Burma, Indonesia, China, Japan, Philippines, the United States, Mexico, Germany, and finally, our great country of the USSR, all before returning to India by 1930s. Uh, yeah, he discovered Marxism in the mid-1910s in the United States. While there, he was arrested, he jumped bail, he changed his name to evade British intelligence, to this Roy, because I will not try to even pronounce his first and second names, really. Uh, but um, there, also, he met a recent Stanford graduate, whom he would later marry, and escaped to Mexico. There, he founded the Mexican Communist Party, uh, by the way, which was the first communist party outside the USSR. Roy would then soon be invited by Lenin to Moscow in 1920 to participate in the Second Congress of the Communist International. And this first appearance uh, led quite an impression of Lenin. And, um, yeah, as uh, Roy was able to get some of his writings incorporated into the Congress decisions. Roy would become the head of the Eastern Section of the, on the Presidium of the Communist International and then would travel to Germany and China to train, and then help direct efforts abroad. 
The delegates of the Second International now included representatives from outside the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Uh, Roy recalled part of the call experience of the event as one in which, quote, nearly all the languages of the world were heard in the streets of the Soviet capital. For the first time, brown and yellow men met white men who were not overbearing imperialists, but friends and comrades, eager to make amends for the evils of colonialism, end quote. International party members felt much more included being treated on an equal plane than many in the colonies had felt in dealing with European leaders. Roy attended there, representing the Mexican delegation as an Indian party had yet to form. While in attendance, he discussed uh, the goals and strategies of the Communist International with with Lenin. By citing Lenin's 1916 work, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, Roy argued that bringing down the most developed, uh, developed capitalist economies in Europe would be made easier by depriving them of their profit source, that is, obviously, their colonies. Roy had impressed the delegates with his intellect and his knowledge of Marxist ideology. And his kind of truly global vision for communism was at that time well received by the Congress, as, yeah, before Stalin came to power, it was all about world revolutions. While there, Roy wrote an alternative draft of a thesis on the national and colonial question, which originally was written by Lenin. And Roy's version kind of expressed his views on the usefulness of depriving Europe of its colonies as the utmost importance. And he argued that thus even moderate nationalist organizations should be supported. The Congress decided to approve both versions after Lenin created a sensation by declaring that prolonged discussion with uh, Roy had made him doubtful about his own thesis. Therefore, uh, Lenin proposed that both drafts should be considered together. And... Yeah, while, while inclusionary, this um, this moment kind of helps explain uh, at that point common turns sometimes conflicting directions because they tried to include everything and everyone in. Then Stalin came and you know gave everyone a nice kick. Lenin's thesis asserted that the Communist International should recognize differences in bourgeoisie democratic movements, with some being revol- revolutionary and others merely reformist. The reformist efforts would not attempt a makeover of the economic order of society, and as such, were not worthy of Soviet support. It is after this uh, convening of the Communist International that the Soviet Union would at least consider devoting resources towards nationalist movements in the East that were not completely strictly Marxist. But yeah, at this time, in 1920, locations of Soviet interest, where they wanted to focus their attention on, on the struggle against this colonialism, included China, Persia, and most importantly, India. Individual cases would now be considered whether these movements uh, were dominated by communists or more moderate nationalist movements on the belief that a revolt would weaken their colonial rulers. It is on this point the, the nature of nationalist movement which would kind of create the most friction within this communist international for some time being. And, uh, yeah... About this, neither Lenin, nor Roy, nor the others of this movement, you know, they they always argued about which of this was uh, useful expenditure of resources. And let me remind you that they're trying to support this mega international revolution activity all the while while war communism is going on and Soviet Union itself, and people are starving, which is just great. And yeah, one of the dissenters here, which is uh, also a prominent uh, man, and a friend of ours, if you listen to the Stalin series so far in this show, was uh, Nikolai Bukharin. Hey, hello, Comrade Bukharin. Hope you survive for a couple more years. 
And this Bukharin guy, our nice friend, urged support of even the most outright nationalist movements if it would, quote, contribute to destruction of English imperialism. This argument over spreading the world revolution versus solidifying the position of the Soviet Union was, was the one which formed the basis of uh, Stalin's purges. Basically, uh, everyone, everyone who in this Congress uh, showed up with any form of support for supporting non-communist or non-revolutionary organizations abroad, yeah, they all got, they, all of them were killed, including Mr. Bukharin, obviously. Uh, but yeah, this was one of the kind of the proofs used later on by Stalin and his purges that these guys weren't really communist as they were ready to give money abroad. Stalin was all about making USSR strong and expanding the borders of the USSR in, and creating satellites, obviously, instead of just, you know, doing some, any world revolutions. Anyhow, while Roy represented Mexico at his first communist international appearance, establishing a communist party of India would be one of the first objectives upon leaving this second congress. Largely through the influence of Roy, a revolutionary training school, with this goal in mind, was opened in Kabul, Afghanistan, uh, as he says, somewhere about 1920, by him and Abani Nakh Mukherjee, as he was named in British intelligence reports. And what's interesting here is that some of these guys trained here were Mujahideen. You might, because uh, named after this uh, Mukherjee, uh, you might know them better as Mujahideen how they would later be renamed, now you might know them as the basis upon which Taliban was formed. A portion of which, by the way, of these guys, uh, subsequently went on to courses in the Eastern University in Moscow. A bit later, uh, this school, established in Kabul, was moved further north to Tashkent, as to not explicitly offend the British, as much as a training school in their border in, with India, like, probably would have. The Moscow training, however, quote, ultimately became the more popular of the two, and Tashkent school was closed several years ago, as of 1930. Just one year into the Communist International, significant attention was then shown to have shifted to efforts to the East, training and educating revolutionaries, with an obvious eye towards India. And yeah, while leaders within the Soviet Union were arguing about the <clears throat> merits of supporting strictly communist causes versus anything literally that weakened European capitalism, the British sought to stem a strain of each. Nationalism in India and a growing Marxist movement at home. Speaking in the role of the Communist Party in Global Revolution during the Second Congress, Lenin quoted remarks and debates with his English <clears throat> comrades Tanner and Maclean. Uh, these guys were officials in the British Labour and British Socialist parties, respectively. In just over a year, we see the role of the Communist International expanded into a truly international entity. One speech by Lenin was even dedicated to the debate about the affiliations of the international that, would, uh, that, that it would have with the British Labour Party. What this meant for Britain was that its growing socialist population, the more radical elements uh, specifically, came to see their own nation's colonies as deserving of independence as they increased contact with the Communist International. The British government largely dismissed this sentiment as a traitorous element under the influence of Soviet Union, you know, rather than internal opinions turning against their own empire. Uh, this whole thing set the stage for a showdown of sorts, in, uh, and I quote Lenin here, <clears throat> in the contested ideological battleground that was 1920s India. These, uh, these connections between the Soviet Union, socialists in Britain, and socialists or nationalists in India came to be a major focus 
for British intelligence officers. Following uh, Winston Churchill's time, and this is quite probably the first time when we touch Winston Churchill in the show, but not the last one, obviously. Following his time as Minister of Munitions from 1917 to 1919, he served as Secretary of State of, for War and Air from 1919 to 1921, and Secretary of State for the Colonies from 1921 to 1922. Churchill's speeches and positions within the British government uh, display an adamant distrust on everything Bolshevik, describing the movement as, quote, the subversive movement of socialism. Churchill's concerns were not limited to the Soviet threat in a war-weakened Europe, however. He, quite honestly and greatly, was among those people who correctly suspected the Soviet Union's plans in Britain's colonies in India, and uh, in particular, he commented on January the 2nd, 1920, quote, <clears throat> We may abandon, the Allies may abandon Russia, but Russia will not abandon them. The ghost of the Russian bear comes padding across the immense field of snow. Now it stops outside the peace conference in Paris, in silent reproach at their uncompleted task. Now it ranges widely over the enormous countries which led us to the frontiers of India, disturbing Afghanistan, distracting Persia, and creating far to the southward great agitation and unrest among the hundreds of millions of our Indian population, who have hitherto lived in peace and tranquility under British rule. Obviously, it was uh, neither peace nor tranquility for the, for a lot of Indians at least. But um, at least here, he's very concerned about the Bolshevik role in all of these nice activities. And uh, considering the Armistar massacre, where the where kind of the British troops in Bengal just shot a demonstration in public with a an immense amount of casualties, uh, as this had occurred within the the last within the last year. At the end of the statement could not be more untrue. Uh, this this sort of thing displays the type of public denial that these British officers appear to be in regarding this whole independence movement in India. Churchill seems to chalk up Indian unrest to nothing more than the provoking behaviors of a northern neighbor. And at this time, he was not the only Englishman to view the Bolshevik regime of the Soviet Union with, with such hatred, which was, you know, kind of geopolitically pretty correct. Russia, as many still referred to this new Soviet Union as the time, and some still did all through the survival of it, was described by them as, quote, the enemy of civilization. And uh, specifically, this was written by one Bray, an Indian Army officer and special intelligence officer. Bray would conclude by 1920 that intercepted messages between Moscow and a Soviet agent in Kabul most likely linked to the training school established by our pal Roy. These suggested that, quote, Soviet propagandists had already penetrated India. These reports offered conclusive proof of Bolsheviks' attempts to establish a Soviet India. Bray's influence was felt as his report, Bolshevik Intrigue, was uh, circulated to the cabinet by Secretary of State of India, Edward Montague, in June of 1921. And, you know, really, indeed, a number of documents within this Indian political intelligence gathered were titled Bolshevik or Communist Intrigue as addressed to superiors within the intelligence community. Because, uh, you see, for as much as the Soviets pushed the envelope and adhered to their own agenda, outside forces inevitably would affect Soviet policy both in terms of reactions against events and opportunities to be seized. Following World War I, European economies were devastated. The central powers of Germany and Austria were hit even harder by the overwhelming burden of war operations, which they really had to pay. But um, Lenin spoke highly of the communist parties developing in Germany, because he saw Germany as the next domino to fall because it was really close to the Soviet Union, its economy was in shambles, 
and because of the outrage of the Allied reparations. As part of the propaganda, the Communist International would release uh, a statement that uh, said that with sentiments, there is not a single healthy spot in Europe. Economically, Germany has been thrown back for for decades. The only real benefactors of these realities were the United States, who were left unscathed by the horrors of war and, you know, the new Soviets, who otherwise might have faced the hostilities of stronger neighbors for, you know, following Soviet threatening ideology, but, you know, they had to deal with the starvation of civil war in their own kind of homes, which got a bit crazy by 1920, if you remember. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi guys, this is Alice. Spring is almost here, so a nice warm spring to all of you, dear listeners. We would like to thank our newest patrons, Monica, Randy, and Matthew. This podcast is fully funded by patrons like you. You put the bread on table and the lights above our heads. In return, we're happy to provide you with monthly raffles and goodies as well as a monthly book reading. We're nearing the end of Anna Polakowska's book, and if you become a patron now, you will of course receive all previous parts. If you haven't become a patron yet but would like to, you can do it at patreon.com slash the eastern border. I know you have something to say. You can feel you've been wanting to ask me something for so long. Go ahead. Write all your questions to me or Chris at theeasternborder at gmail.com, as we will be doing a Q&A sometime in the next months. Thank you all for listening. We love and appreciate you very much. And now, back to the show. See, um, as 1920s were on, the initial optimistic predictions, by Trotsky mostly, and his supporters, of Germany undergoing a communist revolution, appeared less and less likely within each passing month. Face- facing the failure of this rapid revolution in Europe, left the party's top dogs scratching their heads at what exactly went wrong? Isn't our ideology the best? People don't like to be, you know, their stuff taken away from them. War communism seems to work okay, guys. Guys? Okay, fine. Anyhow, the United States, despite having some initial socialist rumblings in the form of early labor strikes and violent put-downs, 
flourished under its capitalism, and, you know, at this point they had already been pledged to help rebuild Europe through loans. Uh, for this, for their initial strikes and stuff, you should go and listen to Inward Empire, which is a great episode on the railroad strikes at the 19th century there. Anyhow, Great Britain recovered from war kind of fairly quickly as it had sustained minimal damage. Its political system experienced Marxist sentiments and its trade unions grew. But the reality was that any kind of revolutionary statement was pacified by relatively minor concessions extended by government and management. Its proletariat class appeared to lack that revolutionary character Marx believed was required, and the leadership to bring the class awareness Lenin believed. With prospects to the West of the Soviet Union looking increasingly bleak, some began to ponder how else to reach the robust industrial workers of the continent. And that, that is when the people like Roy gained more influence within the Communist International. The thought was to attack Europe ideologically, where it's weakest, where its imperialism is, is the highest stage of capitalism. The influence of Roy could be seen as the words of Communist International focused more on imperialism and the peoples of the colonies than previously. The tone of Lenin shifted quite severely in the Second Congress. Uh, gone was the completely unbridled optimism and assured victory, and also gone was the clear focus in Europe. In his reports on the international situation, Lenin opened by discussing the sheer volume of people oppressed in the colonies of the five or six greatest and <clears throat> most civilized and free democratic and capitalist nations in the world. He did this to basically underscore the masses living under seeming hypocrisy, something that could and should be exploited for the benefit of international communism. Uh, this shift is the one that will continue as revolution in Europe did not spread at all, practically, as Trotsky believed it would, until, you know, it was all put down by Stalin and socialism in single state. And while it was true that Europe had the most industrial workers, its capitals were also firmly in control. World War I had shaken its grasp, especially in Germany, but European capitalism was clearly way stronger than expected by the Soviets. The answer for uh, some in the Communist International lied outside of Europe. Remember, however, that this was an organization with international membership. It began to be argued more based on <clears throat> Lenin's pamphlet on imperialism published just before the war broke out in 1914. It maintained that colonial expansion reinforced the foundation of the bourgeoisie order in Europe and delayed its inevitable downfall, according to Karl Marx's prophecies. This is, again, uh, strictly from Roy's memoirs. In other words, Europe's economy had been propped up long before the war from its vast colonial possessions. The colonies of Great Britain, France, and even Germany continued to siphon capital into Europe. Regarding India in particular, <clears throat> the official Comintern Memoranda declared that the plundering of the country's great natural wealth is English imperialism's chief source of power. And uh, this saving grace is in partly why Lenin dubbed imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism. The war had not cost Europe's major powers their colonies, though President Wilson's proclamations of national self-determination did resonate strongly in the colonies of the world. Maybe it was here that the grasp on the colonies kind of firstly began to get weaker over time. Great Britain certainly feared this and saw the most compelling action in this direction in India following World War I. Dubbed the Great Imperial War, as you might have noticed from previous episodes because that's how they named World War I, at uh, this point, you know, uh, Roy calls it a watershed moment in the history of colonial rule. And, you know, other academical sources agree with him on this. 
And while the colonies perhaps saved European capitalism in the face of the communist threat from the Soviet Union, they also would grow to become a major headache in the years to come. Because, like I said before, India was not alone in experiencing this whole nationalism, as all these movements rose in Middle East, Turkey, and China. So, while this perhaps is an ironic quest of fate, really, the strength of capitalism in the eyes of the Soviets was also its weakness. While the colonies propped up Europe, they also represented a possible weakness in their political structure according to Soviet thought. They were a hypocritical weakness that could be exploited. The growing classes of educated in the colonies saw the self-pronounced strength of Western nations in democracy. Their home colonial countries could not become the best they could without their own democracy, their own independence. These discrepancies were something the Soviet Union could exploit with their own communist tinge on the matters, because, you know, everything's better with more communism. A new hope of the Soviet Union for spreading communism into colonies would be that a communist overthrow in India would give the Soviet Union a strong ally to second its claim of communism being the future and would irreversibly damage its former ruling country, the Great Britain. The seeds of communism then grow up in, in the working classes of the home country while still experiencing pressure exerted directly by the communist international. At the very least, it was an alternate model for the global revolution to begin. Perhaps this was kind of a merely a desperate attempt to apply the teachings of Karl Marx, but uh, had the revolution followed in this manner, it would have been the opposite of what uh, Marx believed was the way for communism to develop. Soviet leaders, however, could not bear to admit that the doctrine which they had been fighting under had been wrong. Besides, what did it really matter? The order of means. What did it really matter? The order of means, as long as the final product was the same. See, the Soviets believed they had reasonable chance of success in the colonies for a number of reasons. Local populations had already uh, had al- already a resentment towards their imperial rulers. Nationalist tendencies were already beginning to boil over in some places. Leaders argued that since Russia was a heavily a peasant society going into the revolution, the Soviet model could be better applied to colonies than to the economies of Western Europe. Peasants would form the backbone of the communist overthrow of the colonial government. This would begin the process of communist revolution on a global scale, and thus weaken the economies of Europe's more firmly entrenched and developed capitalist economies. Perhaps the most visible link here, demonstrating the Soviet Union's influence on Indian politics, was through the Communist Party of India. Hey, hey! The party was officially recognized by the Communist International in 1921, though at this time it was based in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, Tashkent in Uzbekistan, and not in India. It took guidance from the Communist International in Moscow regarding labor or consumer strikes to support or reject levels of cooperation that should be undertaken with other Indian socialist factions and efforts to unite all Indian socialists under communism. The party would struggle to effectively establish itself in India, but at least as early as 1921, an entity proclaiming its aims of communist revolution for India existed. The fact, however, that leaders such as Churchill were on record as saying the Soviet Union was directly influencing unrest in India, and that officials within the government of India received reports of Bolshevik intrigue in India. And this was kind of crazy, because still, there was not even a communist party established within the, within there. Because this kind of, you know, shows that even though the Soviets planned this and they had this massive support, the fact that they couldn't bring the communist party in India to India at the same time when Churchill is receiving these reports, kind of shows that the Soviet rhetoric had raised the perceived threat in India without really that much in terms of substantiated intelligence. And, you know, they didn't have any vocal communist leadership there. Which kind of strikes me as odd, because the menace of them going to India and everything happening there in India is uh, given to the communist activities while the communists themselves 
are still in Tashkent. But, you know, it's kind of hard because um, there was, obviously, uh, actual Soviet activity. And in the coming years, in the late 20s, the Soviet influence within India would dramatically increase. But, um, at least in this Stalinism in Britain, uh, the author puts here the thought that, you know, it's really hard to tell how much of the whole communist activity in India was because of the... Soviet Union activities and how much was it because the British focused on this at the detriment of other intelligence gathering is, you know, really not that well known. But that's only that one opinion and we'll dig to this more. During these early years of the 1920s, British intelligence had been keeping tabs on left-leaning organizations, from trade unions to the Communist Party of Great Britain and efforts to establish a party in India. Churchill would also be moved from the War Cabinet to the Colonial Office in February 1921. No longer did his duties put him in direct responsibility of the Soviet Union, where he had been coordinating anti-Bolshevik efforts as during the three years of the Russian Civil War. But now, the empire's most vocal opponent of the Soviet Union was involved in colonial policy. And, you know, obviously it's not naive to think that, you know, he wouldn't have brought his prior mega-suspicions and hostilities with him to his new position. However, these were very well based there, at least to some extent at this time. Other British leaders would echo much of this sentiment of Churchill. As, for example, uh, the the Secretary of State for India, Edwin Montague, in June of 1921, spoke in terms bordering on, well, actual panic, regarding the immediate threat from the Russian Bolshevik regime. And uh, while India experienced nationalistic agitation for independence, leadership continually had an eye on any kind of foreign Bolshevik influence. British intelligence did not just have its hands full at home, but abroad as well. The government of India generated a, quote, an astounding amount of paperwork, correspondence, reports, circulars, censuses, and all other matter of other supervisory documents. Not only were these intelligence officials expected to keep up with collecting information, but they were also tasked with assessing and analyzing it. A, quote, Herculean task, one that distracted local officials from cultivating potential sources and often resulted in the production of reports that were pro forma. End quote. Interwar intelligence gathering did nothing to lighten this load, and that continual reports, quote, could not help, therefore, but be selective, reductive, and unintelligently misleading. The government of India did not possess the manpower, funds, or legal sanction necessary to carry out a full-scale operation of surveillance and infiltration of the nationalist movement. End quote. What this meant is that intelligence operations had to be selective. Certain groups or individuals whose activities were seen more as <clears throat> seditious were prioritized because larger-scale nationalist marches or mass meetings were more difficult to cover and thus pinpoint responsibility. This meant that <clears throat> much more of this intelligence was fragmentary and had to be stitched together by really overloaded and overworked British officials. The conclusion of an understaffed intelligence agency that had to consider priorities together with very strong anti-Soviet rhetoric with the British government and anti-colonial rhetoric from the Soviet Union, you know, really must have played a role in what what the intelligence officers of the British were really focusing on. This could explain, uh, explain the disproportionate amount of attention spent on communist intrigue in India, considering what what impact it actually had in, in retrospect. The Indian Political Intelligence, IPI, was a division within the India Office in London, 
It was the agency employed to assess political situation in India. And while it was officially created before World War I in 1912, the number of documents recording Soviet influence saw a serious jump by 1922. It was supported and fed information from the intelligence bureau in Delhi, various criminal investigation departments of each province, and the British domestic agency New Scotland Yard. IPI information would be transmitted to London to the Foreign Office for analyzing. It was along these avenues of communication that the British assigned varying levels of threat, connected dots, and determined what action would be necessary to take. Indian political intelligence collected information of all things politics in India, and had extensive records on various degrees of left-leaning movements, whether they be broadly socialist or, you know, specifically Marxist. These files included notes if they were independent Indian communists or had ties to the USSR. Intelligence findings built cases incriminating various individuals. The names that appear in all these files attest to that as Gandhi, Nehru, Roy, and Bose all make at least cameo appearances, and, in the case of Roy, extremely major roles. The Indian political intelligence files represent a treasured trove of documents detailing the surveillance efforts the British government in India utilized on spying on any possible threats to their rule. The number of documents total in, uh, into the thousands, and to underscore the degree to which they targeted communists and direct ties to the Soviet Union specifically, entire sections have been organized in collecting regarding Russia, or the Communist parties of Great Britain and India. Some examples of the many files are intercepted telegraphs between various trade and labor unions in India, and either their counterparts in England, suspecting of having connections with the USSR, or with Moscow. Soviet-sponsored banks figure largely into the equation here, along with remittances sent between individuals and organizations across international lines. Along with money, arms were also tracked, probably the two most important parts of really supporting the revolution. Other examples of Soviet intrigue were also documented by the IPI, including these famous training schools in Central Asia and Moscow. Strategic resources as well, Soviet oil and British distribution of oil had really a lot of coverage. And this is kind of this all examples of craziness of how much IPI really tracked. Among one of the earliest IPI reports on Soviet influence, it was reported that over 120,000 pounds, uh, British pounds, had passed through Roy's hands in November of 1922. The report, however, states that much of the money was pocketed by intermediaries and terrorist groups, who were more interested in Russian money than Comintern politics. The Indian political intelligence files also include evidence that the British were aware of direct Soviet efforts to fund banks and trade unions sympathetic to socialist organization both in Great Britain and in India. Just one example is in a document explaining that, quote, <clears throat> Further details have come to light as the result of inquiry into 63 Bank of England pound notes which have been traced to India. It is now certain that these notes came to India via Kabul, as it seems equally certain that they arrived at Kabul via Moscow and the Kabul Soviet legation. This evidence would point in the direction of a money laundering type scheme, where these organizations would then funnel the money to more direct political organizations with the aims of fomenting a socialist or communist revolution in India. The money here most likely would have originated from the Communist International and its proceedings in Moscow, and again, this is at the same time where war communism is still going on. These documents reveal the mounting evidence the British collected regarding direct involvement and would have confirmed prior suspicions. It was not just underground counterfeit operations being traced to Moscow, but there seems to have been a legitimate side of things. The establishment in India of branches of the State Bank of the USSR is discussed in these letters in exchange between British officials. One such letter refers to a local branch, branch opening in Bombay 
and, descri- and is described as an <clears throat> agency of a Soviet bank. Such agents of the Soviet bank apparently had been tracked in other cities in India and back into London. British officials saw growing connections between financial institutions at home and in its colonies to a state-operated bank from Moscow. The banks have, quote, been kept under secret observation from time to time since the signing of the trade agreement with Soviet Russia, as the transactions of the Soviet government in this country appeared to show that they were using their accounts in these banks for the purpose of financing revolutionary movements here and in the colonies. It did really not take, uh, you know, much thought to draw conclusions that all these banks and other financial institutions were just, you know, not simply banking things from the Soviets who were busy doing terrible things at home, but, you know, they were literally, uh, you know, places to fund and support um, all these friendly examples of who might further Soviet interests in Britain. So, with this, increasingly, the Soviet Union, at this point with the banks, represented more than just an ideological threat. They, at this point in the 20s, were actively supporting revolutionary, potentially revolutionary organizations, or literally anyone to destabilize India. It's kind of hard to tell uh, how how British believed uh, the successes of these Soviet attempts really were. As, you know, there was a limited success at fomenting communist revolution early in the 1920s, um, like... It's kind of hard to understand how much of the involvement was there and how much came from from India itself, but I'll get to that eventually, I hope so, in in our Stalin series. But, you know, um, as I I personally understand, these intentions were all the British needed. After all, they had no way of knowing for sure if they knew the extent of Soviet presence in India. These These indirect connections between Indian nationalists and the Soviet Union... Yeah, this was largely something the British could not limit, as most of it was ideological alternatives to the British system. The prominence of the Soviet Union brought knowledge of the ideas it was founded on to a wider global audience simply through newspaper reports, travel, and word of mouth, and, you know, visibility, as much as this whole thing was faked, and, you know, Soviets were, again, as they influenced Nehru by the from Indian sources, masters of this sort of thing. But what the British could prevent, or at least assess with some certainty, is this sort of direct assistance emanating from the Soviet Union. The Communist International, for its part, what what good it did, continued to convene and issue documentation addressed to governments and organizations outside of Europe. A good deal of this was, you know, uh, kind of uh, put to China, as a you know the struggle had started between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, and that was underway already in the 1920s. And, you know, but there are also letters sent to India, such as one sent to Indian National Congress in December of 1922. It uh, told the Congress to order the releases of a number of Indians who had been arrested following training at the military school in Tashkent and at the University for Toilers of the East in Moscow, stating that, quote, The ferocity of this judicial murder is unsurpassed even in the bloody history of British rule in India. Yeah, this uh, British toilers thing, it really existed and it's kind of crazy here. The letter then goes on with, um, you know, the usual uh, Bolshevik radicalism, blah blah, mass murder, this is a crime against proletariat, we shall be victorious and and, and stuff like that. It states that "Mm, British rule can and will be overthrown only by a violent revolution. And uh, obviously, as written by Trotsky, states that the peaceful path preached by Gandhi would obviously fail. 
In a debate regarding Eastern potential, the Communist International described the actions of the West following World War I as forgetting their promises and mm, turned with fresh and unexampled force to the throttling of India, the robbing of China, the division of Turkey, and the enslaving of Persia. Remember that in this selfless struggle you are not alone. By ending with a pledge of support, the USSR was displaying, at least in rhetoric, that it really was concerned with the entire world. This was the time for the global revolution, in many a revolutionary's mind, in the Soviet Union. And British, at all times, hear just hostility to overthrow their rule, and, you know, as they're gathering anything about their own nationalist movements, they hear Soviets basically bashing them at every, every opportunity, really. Churchill, at this time spoke of foreign agents penetrating the British government, subverting society, and plotting to take over the world. Which it pretty much seems they were doing. And then, then in 1924, information appeared, which seemed to kind of vindicate the suspicions of many. The Daily Mail in Britain published a secret letter, supposedly written by Gregory Zinoviev, the head of the Communist International, addressed to the Communist Party of Great Britain, where he instructed them to push for the ratification of the Anglo-Soviet trade agreement and to establish cells within the British army. <laughs> I will quote from the letter now. <clears throat> it would be desirable to have cells in all units of the troops, particularly among those quartered in the large centers of the country and among factories working on munitions and at military store depots. This bombshell of a letter went on to say, quote, It is indispensable to stir up the masses of the British proletariat, to bring into movement the army of unemployed proletarians. The Zinoviev letter, as it would be known, even mentions the colonies, offering assistance that the IKKI, which is the executive committee of the Third International, will willingly place at your disposal the wide material in its possession regarding activities of British imperialism in the Middle and Far East. And yeah, this evidence put on display for all the British public and leadership that surely would prove the active, deliberate Bolshevik conspiracies that many had suspected. The threat, also confirmed, was not just at home, but in the colonies as well. There is just one problem with this, uh, you know, seemingly refutable proof, however. It's, uh... The letter is, is now known, to, you know, to be completely forged. It wasn't revealed, you know, uh, years later, but uh, it was totally forged up. Because uh, even though the Soviets did a bunch of nasty things, uh, Stalin was already climbing into prominent positions at that time, and um, such open letters were not kind of um, how the Soviets often worked, even if you think about all their training facilities. However, this letter served short-term electoral benefits to the majority Tory party in the British Parliament, also long-term vindication for those who would refuse to accept the Soviet Union as a menacing entity that was here to stay. It raised the stakes, really. It raised the stakes and strengthened the questioning of loyalties at home. It was just uh, people were scared of communism. And, you know, that's kind of smart. And regarding the socialists of Great Britain, Churchill stated that, quote, the socialists can think of nothing but Moscow. They look upon it with admiration, almost adoration. My objection to the Russian loan is not alone on the grounds of prudence and profit, it has been also based upon moral grounds. He remained on edge regarding Britain's colonies, and focused on the threat to Great Britain itself, describing the prospects of the Soviet Union as follows, quote, 
Behind socialism stands communism. Behind communism stands Moscow, the dark, sinister, evil power which has made its appearance in the world. A band of cosmopolitan conspirators gathered from the underworld of Europe and America, which has seized the great Russian people by the hair of their heads and holds them in a grip, robbing them of victory, prosperity, of freedom. This plaguish band of conspirators are aiming constantly to overthrow all civilized countries and reduce every nation to the level of misery to which they have plunged the great people of Russia. They strike everywhere, by every method, through every channel which is open to them, but there is no country at which they strike so much as this island of ours. And uh, at the 5th Congress of the Communist International, in 1924, India was again mentioned as a place where the <clears throat> constitutional illusions and hopes of reconciliation among the enslaved masses are fading. Representatives of foreign communist parties increasingly played larger roles in these congresses at this point. Some interesting names appear in its annals, with one Ho Chi Minh addressing the organization in 1924. The Indian portion of the Communist Party still struggled to gain you know, literal any traction. Actual membership of the Indian Communist Party is um, kind of difficult to measure at this point by my sources here, and I've looked it up, but at its formation in 1925, Indian Communist Party itself in India was 78 members, and one of them is reported to say he didn't know whether to laugh or cry. But various labor unions at the same time, with membership in the tens of thousands, could be claimed as communist leadership by supporters of, of all this uh, Soviet Union in India. In India, there was also a growing awareness of socialism, not only through the Soviet Union and their prime influence, but also simply through young Indians who had European education, because, you know, their connections with Britain. Young nationalist leaders looked to the Soviet Union in its first decade of existence with an optimism that a positive alternative to colonial rule had formed in Europe one of which was ideologically friendlier to colonial nations such as India. Obviously, the Soviet Union just fermented these activities and produced these Potemkin villages, and, you know, as we mentioned before, all this uh, admittance with Nehru, and uh, they just continued to show only the good parts of them. The British, meanwhile, knew that communism threatened their colonial holdings on the ideological grounds. As the IPI files have shown, they also had collective extensive evidence that the Soviet Union was actively seeking to foment communists in India. Where the greatest threat came from, they were not sure, but knew the tangible efforts by the Soviets would be easier to combat than that of the idea. This is something they could not do with the growing nationalist sentiment in India. The assistance of the Soviet Union was something that could be stopped if that was indeed what was fomenting Indian dissent, preventing feelings of Indian pride and desire for independence that they couldn't do. The nation and the colony began developing a relationship of mutual interest. The Soviet Union continued its turn towards colonial lands, such as India, as an avenue for spreading communism, at least in rhetorical support, while India saw in the Soviet Union a system which would allow it to exit the imperial world system. While to varying degrees this relationship never came to fruition, it alarmed the British nonetheless, who saw their role in India under attack from their se these separate interests. The main question the British had was how they could stop these trends, Indian nationalism and Bolshevik communism. The thought that the two could, and were, combining, terrified the colonial office to the point that it set up a specific agency to track it. For most Indians, independence was a paramount concern. What would allow it to queer swiftest with greatest chance of success or with least bloodshed? If there was a, possibly, a possibility communism could do this, it would be discussed. And you know, this is the point where Gandhi and Nehru started to educate themselves on the topic and started to think about how it would apply to India. Gandhi, like I said before, had sympathetic statements to the concept of communism. 
anything really that would prom promise independence would kind of influence him at this point, including hardcore communism. For Nehru, again, influenced by the Soviet Union and seen by many as Gandhi's apprentice of sorts, communism or socialism in some form was very appealing because um, <laughs> early in the nationalist push from the idealism of Lenin's young Soviet Union he had to be, you know, largely spoiled by finding out the reality of, of all the regime. This was still pretty influential on him. For others, such as Roy, who was an actual member of the Communist Party, the USSR represented a range of possibilities regarding the future of India. Despite the ultimate failure of Soviet-style communism in India, leftist influences were abound throughout the nationalist movement and were seen by the British to explain their own loosening grasp on the country. And uh, although Gandhi was not the founder of Indian nationalism, he was far and away the largest figure in it. And his experiences and understanding with socialism, which we must look at here, were formed throughout the experiences of his life in, as socialism in practice, and this kind of came to develop throughout Gandhi's lifetime. See, for a while, he actually managed to live in a place called Trotskist Farm. See, in his youth, when he was just a young lawyer in South Africa, uh, all this uh, kind of turned him to nonviolence. He utilized he utilized words such as sat satyaghara or truth force and began connecting sentiments of what it means to be an Indian with expanding political rights. It began to sound nationalistic, and is one of the reasons his stature continued to grow despite his shy personality and you know very polite demeanor. Early in his career, he was not known as a particularly skilled lawyer, but he garnered respect for his philosophies among Indians and British alike. English publicist Percival Landon said, quote, Gandhi is more than a religious revivalist and a holy man. He is Mahatma, to whom almost divine attributes are ascribed. There is no one like him in the world today, end quote. As the 1910s progressed, Gandhi took up cases not just involving Indian rights, but workers' rights and rural interests, as often as they were one and the same. And from there, Gandhi had the most exposure to socialist sentiments and application during the operation of his, uh, like I said, <clears throat> Tolstoy farm community in South Africa, which is another interesting Russian-Indian connection, but uh, I'll have to skip through this one at, the, at this point. As World War I came to a close and violent outbursts of Indian nationalism came with the uh, Yalanivala Bhag massacre, Gandhi saw void in leadership. By 1920, Bal Gandhardak Tilak, had passed away, and the title of leader for Indian independence was open. Gandhi came to assume leadership as the de facto leader of the Indian nationalist movement. Regarding the new ideology that threatened British so much, Gandhi recognized the appeal communism had for a colonial country such as India, and the hope that the new Soviet Union represented for many Indians, you know, because they only saw the good parts of it. What leaders such as Gandhi and others saw in the new Soviet Union is a nation that denounced the practice of imperialism and had deep roots in socialism. That stance alone would be enough to garner the curiosity of outsiders, regardless of their understandings of what was going inside the country, but uh, or, or their true understanding of communism with its practice and its methods. What they saw was the pleasant image, and it looked really, really, really nicely appearing to them, especially with, you know, them living under the British yoke. And again... Like uh, our Indian sources state, and this is about the same thing, but this time from from these academical sources. The most important Indian nationalist leader to actually spend a good deal of time and, and status and effort into considering the Soviet model for India was, like I mentioned before, Nehru, India's first prime minister and Gandhi protege. He had definite socialistic influences on in his politics. Nehru came out of an elite background. 
His father, also an influential voice in Indian politics, brought him up with a liberal Western education. Nehru attended Trinity College in Cambridge, where he received a degree with honors in the natural sciences. He spent additional years in London studying for the bar until becoming a lawyer in 1912. Nehru had shown an interest in politics early on, having expressed criticism and impatience of moderates in Indian politics. Chiefly, he disliked the continual pledges of loyalty to the British crown. Leaning liberal, though, Nehru saw a clear contradiction between the freedoms associated with the Western governments and the democracies, and what actually physically happened with the imperial British rule in India. He was first and foremost nationalist at this point, as he would, and he would largely remain so throughout his life. His time in Cambridge exposed him to socialist ideas, quote, but it was all very academic at this point, end quote. And Nehru, unlike Gandhi, never really had the strong religious sentiment. Upon leaving London, Nehru relocated to Allahabad and worked under his father at his law practice. During the following years, Nehru continued to see himself as a nationalist purely, but socialist ideals kept speaking to him in the back of his mind. He would go on to write that, quote, I am a socialist and a republican, and am no believer in kings and princes, end quote. While far from stating that he's a Soviet communist, he does include the word socialist there. It was, it's a clear indication that at this time, socialist affiliations and all this uh, left-leaning stuff in India was becoming extremely prominent. And, you know, mainstream, uh, mainstreamly accepted in everyday politics. Now, one uh, Rajani Palmadat, the British communist with Indian ancestry, helped lead the British party from the 1920s into the 1960s, and was well-read inside the communist world as out. He would, quote, become the principal link between the Communist International, the Communist Party of Great Britain, and Communist parties in many parts of the British Empire, notably Indian subcontinent. The Fifth Congress of the Communist International, after all, had, quote, devolved responsibility to the CPGB regarding India. That is, the Communist International had given the responsibility about dealings with India to the Great Britain's Communist Party. And although this guy supported these movements ideologically, Dutt was not an Indian citizen, and so the real influences from the Indian perspective, you know, they lay elsewhere. Dutt's main concern was was in his home, Great Britain. Here, by the way, is an example of someone who saw socialism as a possibility in India, supported and was partially involved with it, but really never actually did anything about it, which is fun. As the midway point in the 1920s passed, the mutual interest between the Soviet Union and India continued to develop from the beginning of the decade. Though Nero had expressed distrust at Western reports of Bolsheviks in 1919, he had yet to garner any first-hand experience on the topic. Indian nationalism was undergoing its own ebbs and flows with Gandhi continuing his rise to prominence. Others with stronger ties to communism in India, such as Dutt and Roy, had minimal impact within the nation itself, Dutt being in Great Britain and Roy leading these Mohajdeen schools in Moscow and, Afga- and, and, and Tashkent and all these other places. During this time, the Soviet Union was more explicit with its intentions for the East and India specifically. You know, Trotsky, among other leaders, voiced support for growing sentiment there, and the Communist International increased efforts in the form of funding and rhetoric. This would soon change, as Stalin comes in, because this whole idealism and wasting money abroad was not for Stalin, who, th- who sought industrializing first. But at this point, in the larger picture... The very basic step of establishing an Indian Communist Party within the, Indi- within the borders of India had still failed. It only happened in 1925, and only then with 78 members. The British, who knew from the start the Soviet Union was an enemy of capitalism, reassigned much-needed resources within the intelligence services to assess the strength of the Soviet influence in India. 
And while they gathered evidence proving what they suspected to find, they also displayed a priority to the communist threat over that of the much larger Indian nationalist movement, which basically prevailed in the end. So, they basically fought the Soviets so hard that they forgot to fight the nationalists. So, you know, nationalists actually happened. In this, <laughs> in this uh, the Empire's efforts to explain unrest really increasingly relied on intelligence that was focused on external threats rather than internal developments. So, you know, they fought communists so well that it allowed nationalists to succeed. But yeah, this is where we end our episode because this would also explain a lot of things. We will get to why the communists uh, in the 70s garnered power in Bengal region and these regions mentioned at the beginning of the episode. We will also speak about what happens when, um, when Stalin gains power, when the purges start and all this stuff. But that is for a future episode, as this one has gone on long enough. But we will first catch up to 1925 in the Stalin series, and then you'll get the part two of this. Hope you enjoyed this episode. До свидания, товарищ. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.